um, Megan Gokenauer and my wife because she sent it to, to Mary and then I stole it from her and now it's, it's mine. But he's bringing us back. Somebody say amen. amen. Say Christ alone. Amen. So Solus Christus, Christ alone, our last of our Sola September services. This is a quote from Oswald Chambers in one of, the, one of um, uh, the devotionals that he has out. It says this, in our natural life, our ambitions change as we grow. But in the Christian life, the goal is given at the very beginning. And the beginning and the end are exactly the same. Our Lord himself. We start with Christ and we end with him. Christ alone. It doesn't change. Five years from now, we won't be talking about something other than Christ. 20 years from now, we won't be talking about something other than Christ. Whatever you're going through with your kids, the answer is Christ. Whatever you're going through in your marriage, the answer is Christ. Whatever's going on in the church, the answer is Christ. If you're looking for direction, look to Christ. In the beginning and at the end, it remains the same for us as Christians. He's the focal point. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone as we worship this morning. Amen? So from time to time, just like the song said and just like we said here in our church, we have to be brought back to that. We have to be reminded of that. We have to, to know exactly what we're built on, what is our center, what is our core. So in John chapter 14, verse 6, this is our, uh, I would say it's, it's the title of our actual church, so it, it definitely means a lot to us. But John 14, 6 says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So Christ alone essentially is about the fact that salvation is in Christ alone. If you want to know what it's about and what we're going to look at and how we're going to look at it, what does Christ alone mean, solus Christus? It means that salvation is in Christ alone. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and nobody comes to the Father, nobody gets to heaven, nobody gets eternity in peace without coming through me. By Christ alone can you be saved. That's what it means. There's no provision for good people. There's no provision for kind people. Caring people, considerate people, giving people, those who change over time, those who mature, those who stop behaving in certain ways and have new ways and new behaviors, that's all good, but it has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Amen? Not only is salvation found in Christ alone, I think we need to broaden our perspective and our view on what and who Christ really is. Everything comes through Christ alone, and everything is for Christ alone. It's not just church stuff. It's not just Christian stuff. It's not just these good things that we like to consider, but everything that you see, everything that you know, it has come through Christ, and it is for Christ. Think right now, it doesn't matter what category of life, it doesn't matter what category of the world, think about it, and you know who created that? Christ. You know who it's for and whose glory it's for? The glory of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We looked at that when we looked at Sola Scriptura last week. But it says this about Jesus in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He's bigger than church. He is everything. Everything that exists, it exists because of him. 
In the beginning, nothing was created that was not created by him and through him and for him. The chair you're sitting in, the ground you walk on, the air you breathe, the trees you see outside, all by him and for him and through him. That's what the scriptures tell us. The scriptures tell us that right now he's holding everything together. The fact that you're able to breathe, the, act, the fact that you woke up this morning, he's holding it together actively in his hands. Not subconsciously, not just some laws that he put into place, that actively he's holding everything together still today. We need to really look at who our God is and who Jesus is. Somebody say amen. amen. The scriptures also say this, that he's gone to prepare a place for us in heaven to dwell for all of eternity. So not just the past of creation and putting everything in place and creating everything that you see and that you are able to experience, not just the present of holding your life together now, holding you up, breathing life into you, making sure that those lungs are working, making sure that that heart is beating, right, that that mind is sharp. He's doing all those things in the now, and it says even in the future, he's gone to prepare a place for you and to prepare a place for me. He's an active God. He's an engaged God. He's not a bystander. You know, he's not removed. He says that he's with us. He's close to us. When he was here on the earth, he says the kingdom of heaven has come. It's near to you. So here's a scripture I, I want to kind of begin with. Uh, that to me, it, it paints a picture of who he is and what he's doing out of the book of Colossians chapter 1. This is verse 13 through 21. It says that, speaking of God, it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his glory. To be put on a conveyor is you're not doing anything. God is doing everything and moving you to where he wants you to be, right? Because it's Christ alone that's doing the work. You're not even walking. You're not even moving. You've been put on a conveyor, and you've been conveyed out of darkness and into the light. Verse 14 says, it's he in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once or excuse me, who once were alienated and enemies in your own mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. That's Christ. That's who he is. That's how big he is. That's what he's doing. That's how he's changing lives. That's how he has shaped the world and continues to shape the world. That's how he conveys us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's how you and I were once far off and alienated and separated from God, and he has brought us close, made us intimate, reconciled us, and forgiven us. So I thought to myself, how do we look at sola scriptura? How do we look at Christ alone when it's so big and you guys are only going to give me a certain amount of time? So I decided I want to look at five things that Christ alone can do. We know that Christ alone is about salvation. 
We know that he's past, present, and future. We know that it's all for him and through him. But there's five things, five areas I want to focus on. And we're going to look at things that Christ alone can do. We're going to look at Jesus removes sin. Jesus removes shame. Jesus personifies love. Jesus embodies God. And Jesus declares and illuminates the path. And when I say the path, I mean the path. There's only one. There's only one that leads to life. All other paths lead to death. They may not look like it. They may not feel like it, but that's where they lead. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end is death and destruction. That's what the scriptures say. Jesus says we have to enter by the narrow road. The wide road leads to death and destruction. And there's one that leads to life. And he says there aren't very many who actually find it. So he removes sin, removes shame, personifies love, embodies God, and he declares that there is a path and he illuminates that path for you and I. If we can focus on these things when we think about Christ alone, I think we can be successful, we can be engaged, we can know more about our Savior by doing this. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, is going to give us a little bit of a, a framework for, for the couple of stories that we're going to look at. Ephesians 2, 14 says... For he himself is our peace, speaking of Christ, obviously. He himself is our peace who has made both one. And he has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished it in, in his flesh, the, the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So this scripture is about two different groups. Say two groups. You have a group of people who are inside and you have a group of people who are outside. And what this scripture is saying is that Christ alone could bring those two groups together and present us to the Father. The group that's inside are his chosen ones, his children, the children of Israel. He named them, he claimed them, he put his sign upon them. He, uh, he had them to circumcise himself in the flesh to be identified with him. They belong to him and he's doing something with that group of people. And then he says there's a whole other group of people who is everybody that is not an Israelite, who is not a Jew, right? And he says, only through Christ can I reconcile this and make the two one. Only through Christ can the two become one and be sinless, righteous, and presented before the Father and given access, right? These two different groups. Christ alone can accomplish this. What we're going to look at this morning are two stories. Two stories. One is about the the group that's inside, right, believers. The other is about the group that's outside, the non-believers, the Gentiles, those who are not saved, those who haven't put their faith in Christ. This morning, I think it's important to remember this. If you're here, I hope that you're saved. I hope that you've given your life to the Lord. I hope that you've asked him to do the things that we've talked about, convey you into the kingdom, forgive you of your sins. So the Lord does this a lot when he, when he was here on the earth and he continues to do it. He speaks to those who are already his and he continues to change us and grow us challenge us, convict us, encourage us, and love us, all those things. But he also has a word and direction for those who are outside about coming in. Amen? So we're going to look at two stories and see if we can, we can see what he's doing here briefly. The first is chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter 7. You guys can turn there. I don't know if we have them. Zach, do we have these? 
Amen. So you don't have to turn. Luke chapter 7 this morning, verse 36. I'm going to read through this story. Um, <clears throat> and this first story is about those who are outside. Let that be your focus. Think about this. He's God. He's the Savior. He created everything. He's come into his creation, right? And he's going to encounter people who are outside that don't know him, who are not saved, who are not men and women of faith. And there's a lot of them in this story. So just kind of pay attention as we, as we read through it. Luke 7, 36 says, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, say sinner, sinner. say like me. like me. Oh, see, you messed up. You just said it before you even thought about it. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Stop there. We're at verse 39. Just think about this. Picture it. Imagine somebody inviting you over to their house for dinner. You walk into the house. They offer you some water. You sit down at the table. And some random person who nobody knows breaks through the door, comes to somebody sitting at the table, begins to weep over them and pour perfume and cologne over them and cry over them and wash their feet. That's how crazy this story is. When we read the Bible, don't just read it or don't just listen to it. Think about everything that's engaged and involved in the story. She doesn't belong in that house. She doesn't know those people. She's not allowed to be there. These are Pharisees, church folks. She's a sinner, and she doesn't know Jesus. She just heard that he's there. Verse 39, now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw what manner of woman, excuse me, saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man. If he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Stop there real quick. I love this story. I probably told you about it before. Jesus at the table talking to a Pharisee and other Pharisees around the table. The woman comes in. She's doing this, cleaning, putting uh, fragrant oil on him, washing his feet, all these things. But he's talking to Simon across the table who thinks Jesus doesn't know what he's thinking. He wasn't talking to Jesus when he said what he said, but Jesus addressed it anyway. And now it says that he turns and he looks at the woman down at his feet, but he's still talking to Simon across the table. He hasn't even addressed the woman. For many of us, when we feel like God is not paying attention to you, please be sure that he knows exactly who you are and where you are and what you're going through. Just because he may not be speaking to you by name, that you know he's talking to you, he is concerned for you, just like he's concerned for me. So here's this woman going through all this. She's crying. She's praying. She's washing his feet, just like many of us do when we think we're being ignored. But Jesus is not so concerned with her, at least Verbally, he's concerned with Simon, this Pharisee, across the table. Which will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the woman, the one whom he forgave, Lord, he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, now he's going to talk to her. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a story about a bunch of people who are on the outside. These Pharisees, even though they look like they belong to the church, they're on the outside. They're not saved. They're not serving God. They have no relationship, so they're on the outside. This woman had, had not known the Lord, had not brought herself to God, had not asked for forgiveness, so she is on the outside. And Jesus is having this talk. He's having this engagement. He's having this experience with them. And he's providing things and teaching things and showing things that are only available through Christ alone. Say Christ alone. So the five errors that I told you about, the first was that Jesus removes sin. He's the only one that can do that. You can't do that. A counselor cannot do that for you. A pastor cannot do that for you. A church cannot do that for you. A confessional booth cannot do that for you. Change in behavior cannot do that for you. The forgiveness of sin is only through Christ alone. During this story, it says that he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So we often think, well, how are sins forgiven? What do we have to go through? What do we have to do? What does it feel like? What does it look like? What does the Bible say? He looked at her and he told her, your sins are forgiven. Does it say that all of a sudden something physically happened to her? Does it say that lightning started to, to strike and the earth quaked? Does it say that immediately she felt something different about herself? Or does it just say that God himself, Jesus Christ, told her your sins are forgiven? Many believers are waiting for something to happen, or many potential believers are waiting for something to happen that the Bible doesn't say will happen. What the Bible says is if you believe in God, if you trust in Jesus for salvation and for forgiveness of sins, you will be saved. You hear the word of God, just like Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven right here. Jesus says to you, if you believe in me, if you confess your sins, you will be saved. That's how you get saved. And it only comes through Christ alone. So we see it here in this story. He forgives sins. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. What a powerful thing. When we're looking at how do we get saved, when we're trying to tell our friends and family why we want them to come here, why we want them to engage with God, and what they need to hear, and what God is doing, do you know sometimes we begin to build up these requirements for them to get saved and to come to know God that are not biblical, and it's discouraging? Why do you think people ask you, well, how do I have to dress when I go there? Or, or what time is service? Or, or what's the pastor like? Or what are the people like? And I don't want to go, I don't want to be judged. It's because we've built up these requirements that are not biblical. Salvation is simple. Jesus provides forgiveness of sins if you ask for them. He said to her, woman, your sins are forgiven. It says here, the, the second thing that I said to you is that Jesus removes shame. How many of you, before I even share what I'm going to share, how many of you have felt your shame be removed in some areas because of Christ? Praise the Lord. You know, shame is, is powerful. The devil uses it like, ugh. 
I played basketball and I got one move. I used to have a lot of moves. I'm down to one. I face up. It's through the legs here, and I go as fast as I can that way, and if it works, it works. If it don't, hey, that's all I got. <laughs> and I feel like that's how the enemy is a lot of times with shame. That's his go-to move. I'll shame you. I'll make you afraid to be out there. I'll make you feel like, oh, you can't let anybody see this. You can't let anybody know this. Don't even bring it to God. Don't bring it to your pastor. Don't bring it to a leader. He shames us. Over and over and over again, the things that we've done in the past, he brings it to our attention. As soon as we're over it, somebody posts something on Facebook, you know they're talking to you, and you're ashamed. Thank God we have a Savior that removes shame. Listen to what, what these, these outside men, these Pharisees say. This woman comes in, she begins to engage and encounter Christ, Right? She comes to his feet like all of us need to come to his feet, right? We don't come to his face or to his head, put our arm around Jesus like, hey, let's talk about some stuff, right? He's the Savior. You come to his feet. You humble yourself and you say, I'm a sinner. Help me, save me, forgive me, right? So that's what she does. And the church, the leaders, the Pharisees, listen to what he says. He says, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were God or if he was even just a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. They're trying to shame her. Look at her. She's a sinner. She's dirty. She don't even need to be in this house. She definitely don't need to be touching this man. She's nothing. But he removes shame. He says, you can come to me. You can touch me. I'll touch you. It don't matter if you're a leper who's diseased that nobody's allowed to touch because they're going to get sick. I'll touch you. It don't matter if you're a, a woman caught in adultery, I'll defend you. You can come close to me. You don't have to speak for yourself. I'll speak to all these people who want to stone you right now. I'll remove your shame. I'll defend you. Right? Woman coming out to the well. She came out to the well in the middle of the day by herself because she wasn't allowed because of her behavior and how many men that she had been with. She wasn't allowed to go to the well with the other women who were civilized and faithful, right? She had to go by herself. But you know what Jesus said? I'll come close to you. We can meet at the well and talk. You know why? Because he removed shame. Your shame can only be removed by Christ. You can hide it. You can get around some people that will justify it and encourage you and pretend like they don't care. But it won't be removed. It'll still be there. and You'll still be ashamed. If you bring it to Christ and you allow yourself to come close to Christ and him to come close to you, you will have your shame removed. It doesn't mean that you don't remember maybe some things that happened in the past. It doesn't mean that those things didn't happen. I got a lot of things in my past, but I'm no longer ashamed. To me, they're part of my testimony for what God is doing. He gets all the glory, but it's what he's doing in my life. It's no longer a source of shame. It's a reminder of what he can do in the lives of others. God does that. Christ alone. I said, number three, that Jesus personifies love. What it means to personify is literally to be put in the form of a person. All right. To come forth from a person completely personifies love. All right? What we've come accustomed to is, is men and women, friends and family that are able to express love in a limited means and periodically. So let's, let's look at the difference real quick. I know people who are able to express love to me periodically. But it's a, in a limited means. I don't know anybody that can do it 100% of the time and in an unlimited fashion. Somebody say amen. Does that make sense? 
the people who love you the best are still limited. They can't do any more than they're doing. They're doing all that they can, and it's still not unlimited. The difference with Christ is that he personifies love completely, embodies it 100% and to the tilt. More than you can, uh, you can uh, value or identify or, or put it into numbers, right? It's off the charts. What he says to this woman, he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now, I know that might be a little bit challenging to see the, to see the love in that, but if you've ever been labeled, if you've ever been in bondage, if you've ever been held down, held back, uh, restricted, any of those things, the love that he has for this woman, not only to remove her shame, not only to forgive her sins, but to tell her, listen, you can go in peace. I love you. You don't owe me anything. I'm not going to hold anything over your head. It's not like you have to earn anything. It's not like you have to pay me for something. No, my love for you is complete. It is without limits. You can go in peace. You can live in peace. You can live without worry. You can live without worry about me uh, abandoning you or changing my mind about you or feeling differently tomorrow or you falling short next week. No, my love is without limits and it's not even contingent upon you or your behavior. To be able to go in peace is something else, church. I think we undervalue that statement. I think uh, it would serve us well to pray and ask God, what does that mean and what does that mean for me? Not what it meant for her, not what it means for the other people that we see in the scriptures, but what does it mean for me, Lord? Have I heard you say it? Will you say it to me? And what does it mean for me to be able to go in peace? When we leave most of our people, our friends, our family, our parents, our kids, we say, Go with restriction. <laughs> you can go, but if you do X, Y, or Z, believe me, there's going to be some issues. You can go, and right now we're good, but I'm not making any promises about what it's going to look like in five years. There's no peace in that. There's no love in the, in the, in the way that Christ alone can offer love and companionship and intimacy and care. I put here that Jesus embodies God. That was number four. He embodies God, right? So in all of history, <laughs> the only time that we see this is, is in Christ. He is God. Right? He's not godly. He's not godlike. He's not Mother Teresa. He's not the Virgin Mary. He's not Gandhi. He is God. Somebody say amen. amen. He embodies God. If God could fit into a person, they did it. They did it with Christ. He's 100% man and he's 100% God. We looked at it in Exodus. He is the Ark of the Covenant. He's a gold box and he's a wooden box, but he's one box. He's God and man. In this scripture of our story today, when he uh, looks at the woman and says, your sins are forgiven, what did the Pharisees say? Who is this that even forgives sin? Who does he think he is? Even the greatest of the prophets never said that. No matter who you are, you can't tell somebody their sins are forgiven. And the closest you can get is us. We're the church. We tell you when you're right with God or not. But Jesus looked right at this woman. He says, your sins are forgiven you. How can he do that? Because he is the embodiment of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And you see all this in a story with who? Those who are outside. <laughs> he ain't even talking to the church folk. He's talking to people outside. And the last one, I said that Jesus declares and illuminates the path. He declares and illuminates the path, the only path, the one that we have to find. So he says to Simon, this Pharisee who's there, 
He says, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. And verse 46, he says, and you did not. He's going to go on to some other things, but this is what I want you to focus on. He's laying out the path. He's saying, you want to be close to me? At the end of this story, what does it end in? Forgiveness, right? Stay focused. At the end of this story with this woman, it ends in forgiveness. It ends in salvation. It ends in love. It ends in all those things. But in the middle, he's laying out the path. He's telling Simon, who thinks he's inside, but he's really outside. He says to him, look, this is what she did. She came to me. She knows she's a sinner. She humbled herself. She fell at my feet. She pursued me. She wants something for me. And at the end, she's going to find salvation. You know what? But you did not. You are not on the path, and you will not find salvation. You may find church. You may find leadership. You may be a Pharisee, but you will not find salvation. What you will find is you will meet me at the gates, and I will say, flee from me, for I never knew you. Because you're on the wrong path. There's only one right path, and I'm trying to illuminate it for you. This is the path humbled before me, understanding your state. You guys look good like you invited me over here to dinner. The food you're serving, I gave you that food. The house that you have, I gave you that house. You ain't doing nothing. You're making yourself look good, but you're on the wrong path. It doesn't lead to salvation. He declares and illuminates the path all the time. If you're looking for Jesus, look for the path, and you'll find him because that's what he wants to do in your life. Wherever you are right now, he's trying to take you somewhere, and he's trying to illuminate the path for you. You may be looking elsewhere. I may be looking elsewhere. We may be trying to do other things, which, again, as a pastor, it's a good thing to be able to say, you know what, let's put a halt to everything in September. Let's remember. Let's, let's find the path that he's trying to lay out for us. That's what he does. It's his MO, method of operation, standard operating procedures. He doesn't change. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Somebody say amen. So if he's laying out the path for these people, he's laying out the path for us people. So that's the first story about those who are outside and, and Jesus, Christ alone, doing these five things. The second story I want to share with you is for those who are inside. Say inside. inside. Say the real, church. the real church. Amen. So if this applies to you, listen up. This is John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I'm going to read from, from verse 1. Give you a second. I think it's going to come up for you, but. John chapter 14, verse 1, this same Jesus, now he's talking to some folks who are inside. He says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Verse 4, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Verse 13, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I'll pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Remember, this is inside, folks. Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Amen. Thank God for scripture, amen? Scripture alone. Good Lord. So you look at the, the contrast of these stories. Jesus walks into a house full of truly non-believers, Pharisees, this woman, and he's engaging, he's doing all these different things. And if you look at this story, when it's believers, this, these are his disciples, it seems like he's a little bit more clear, a little bit more direct, maybe has a little bit higher expectation for them when it comes to the area of understanding. But you see all the same things, so let's look at them. Jesus removes sins. So when he's talking to the outsiders, he talks about just coming to him, right? Coming to him, that, that humility, being at his feet, understanding their condition. He says this in, in this group. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. He's saying, look, Paul says I still die daily. Paul says that none of us are righteous, that we get salvation in the beginning. Somebody say amen. You come to him and you get salvation. But once you enter into a relationship with him, his expectation is that you are going to keep the commandments. That you're not going to, what did he say to the woman? Or he said it to Simon when he was talking about it, the woman. He said, who is going to love me more? Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Right? So now when he's talking to disciples, those who are in the church, he's saying to us, if you love me, keep my commandments. Don't tell me you love me and then do whatever the heck you want to do. That's not how it works. If you understand my salvation, if you understand it was through grace alone, by faith alone, and through Christ alone, if you really understand that, you would love me. And if you love me, you'd keep my commandments. Or you'd fight like crazy too. So that's a different conversation he has with church folks. What do you mean you're still doing that? What do you mean you're not reading my word? What do you mean you don't feel like you need to go to church because you have spirituality? No, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how I'll deal with your sin moving forward. See, you have salvation, you have sanctification. Sanctification is a process where he takes you, puts you on the potter's wheel and begins to shape you, mold you, change you, deliver you, further you, grow you. But that comes in the church and through discipleship and through keeping the commandments. He says, those who have been forgiven little, love little, but those who have been forgiven much, love much. That woman who was at his feet, she knew what she needed to be forgiven for, and she loved much. The question oftentimes that you have to ask yourself as we look at this essential foundational 
series is this. Do you really feel like you've been forgiven much? Or do you feel like you've been forgiven little? Because if you love little, it's because you think you've been forgiven little. If you love much, it's because you know you've been forgiven much. It's back to that same example, right, with breathing in the oxygen and the carbon dioxide comes out. There's no other way that it works. If you know that you were a wretched sinner, naked, blind, horrible, unfaithful, untrustworthy, lying, prostitute of a man, prostitute of a woman, if you know that that's what you were and he came and loved you and defended you and took your shame, then you're going to love much. If you think that you had some things going for you and you came to be a benefit to God and to the kingdom, well, then things might be a little bit different. I know where he found me. I know where I was at. I know what I was involved in. He removes sin, but for those who are in the church, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He removes shame. I like this one. In the beginning, he told the disciples, right in the beginning, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And I thought about this because there's already a church. It's the Pharisees. It's the church of God that's, that's on the planet then. And these group of disciples that have put their faith in Jesus, right, they're not looked at as like what we look at them now. When we think about Peter and, and John and we think about the disciples, we, we just lift them up and elevate them. They were outcast. They were seen as heretical. They, it, would, it would have been, it was literally shameful to put your faith in Jesus versus putting your faith in the church. And he says, listen, don't be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. I'll take that shame. You're doing the right thing. Even though everybody will tell you you're doing the wrong thing, even though everybody will tell you that you need to belong to the big church and you're with this small group of 12 people running around, I'll remove that shame. You know how I'll remove it? By what I do in your life. He says, greater things will you do, those who believe in me. That other church over there that's big and it's a huge temple, in a little while I'm going to break all that down when I'm on the cross. Literally an earthquake is going to come, tear the veil in two, and it's going to be in shambles. But you guys are going to be running around healing people, raising the dead, healing the sick, sick cleaning, uh, cleansing the lepers. Then who will they be looking at? Then who will be ashamed? You believe in God, believe in me, he says, and I'll remove your shame. As a church member, I'm not saying this to compare us as, a, as an average-sized church, a relatively small church, to a bigger church, but I'll say this. When I look at the testimonies that are alive inside of your guys' life, there's no shame in my game. There's no shame in my game. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. There's no other church that I want to belong to. Believe me, I have pastor friends and I have other churches that I love that I know that God is doing the same things. But it's like, look, I believe in God in the big church. I believe in God in the smaller churches. There's no, there's no shame. When somebody, when somebody asks me or they find out that I pastor, oh, you pastor a church? Oh, yeah. First thing they want to know, where is it? How many people? So right now I look around, I'm like, yeah, we got, we got, we're pushing about 100, we're pushing about 100. But if they're from a church of 500 or 5,000, it's like, oh, that's cute. That's cute. Oh, he's, he's pastoring. Oh. Keep it up, buddy. Just keep, keep on going. It's like, that's not how you may look at it, but that's not how I look at it, right? I know who my Savior is. There's no shame here. He removes shame. He tells me, I believe in God, believe in him. I believe in what he's doing in this church. I believe in what he's doing in your lives. I tell you guys all the time, I'm not practicing on you. I'm not waiting for better people to show up. <laughs> you guys are round one. I screw all your lives up, and then when the real people come in, oh, it's going to be on. <laughs> no, you are the real people. 
This is our church. This is the life that God has given us. These are the people that he said, you love them and let them love you. This is who we're supposed to wrestle with. This is how we're supposed to live. I have faith in God that he knows where I'm at. He didn't make some mistake. I don't have to pray like, hey, Lord, I know that you called me the pastor, but I don't know if you forgot or you're kind of busy, but I'm still over here in prayer with these people. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. I love how he removes shame. He says, you believe in God, believe in me. If you know that I care about you, you know that you're where you're supposed to be, you know that things are happening according to my will, and if you have your sola areas right, you can have confidence that I'm doing exactly what I want to do. If your solas are wrong, then yet you might need to be scared. So let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. That's what he told his disciples. Then it says, I said that he personifies love, right? That love within the body of a person, love expressed completely and fully. He said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, but the most important thing he says is, I will come again and receive you. What greater love is there than that? To be able to say, look, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to get you. Yes, I have to go and do something, but I will not forget you. I will not change my plans. I will not leave you hanging. I will not allow you to invest your life, your heart, your soul, your emotions, and then deny you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, I'm going to accomplish something, but I'm accomplishing it for you, and I'm going to come back and receive you. If you look at men and women's lives, like we talked about in the, in the first story, one thing that we're used to is being abandoned, right? One thing we're used to is being forgotten. One thing we're used to is being failed. And we're used to it on both sides, right? We abandon others, we forget others, and we fail others because that's just our human nature. We're fallen. Christ ain't like that. When you read through the book of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith, Chapter 11, what it says is it, li it lists all these people who put their faith in God, and then you know what happened? They died before he came back. They died before they saw what it was that they hoped for. But our hope is an eternal hope. It doesn't matter what you get on this earth if you really trust him and believe him. Listen to these disciples. He told them, look, I'm going, but I'm going to come back for you. You know they all died? They had their, their arms and legs ripped off. They had their heads cut off. They were crucified upside down. The Bible says, let every man be a liar, but let the word of God be true. Just because we're experiencing something that seems like it's not what he said it would be, it doesn't mean that we've been abandoned or lied to like others have abandoned and lied to us. He says, I'll come again and I'll receive you. One day we will go up in glory. It says, those who died in Christ will rise first. Every one of those disciples, every believer in Hebrews chapter 11, all of those that we know that have died while they've been members of the church, not physically in a building, but part of God's family through salvation, they will rise first. Whoever's alive on the planet who has given their life to the Lord, they will rise and meet them in the clouds and then the promise will be true and confirmed. Why? Because he personifies love. He's all love, right? He always comes back. He says, I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive you. He embodies God. He told the disciples, I'm God. And this is how he said it. He who's seen me has seen the Father. That's what he told them. Don't wait for somebody else. Don't wait for another sign. Don't wait for another Messiah. If you saw me, you saw the Father. You've seen the Son. You've seen the Father. You've seen God. We are one. We are a trinity. In the beginning, we created everything, and we created God, or excuse me, we created man in our image, our multiple, all three of us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the embodiment. Again, he's Emmanuel, God with us. And the last one, 
Jesus declares and illuminates the path. He said to them, where I go, you know, and the way you know. I want you to think about this. Where I go, you know, and the way you know. He says it so matter of fact, like, look, you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. And you hear Thomas's response after this. He's like, we don't know. Stop telling us that we know when we don't know. I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to get there. But he's confident. This morning, I want you to be confident, even if you feel a little lost, even if you don't feel like you're 100% certain about a whole bunch of things. I can hear him saying to me, and I can hear him saying to you, you know the way. You know where I'm going, and you know the way. Lord, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know if I'm in the right place. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I don't know if this is the minute. Whatever it is that you're saying you don't know, he's saying you know where I'm going, and you already know the way. And then you know why? He says later on, because I'm the way. That's how you know the way is because you know him. If you know Christ, you truly do know the way. You know where you're supposed to go. You know where he's going. He's leading you and directing your life. If you just slow down, if you just slow down, it'll turn out that you're wrong and he's right. You think you're lost and you're right where he wants you to be. You think you're never going to get to the place that you want to go and he says, listen, you're on a conveyor, baby. <laughs> I'm taking you. Whether you want to go there or not, I love you and I'm taking you. And he's not like us with our, with our kids. Like my kids, I love surprises. Anybody who knows me, you know I love surprises. I'd be showing up at church wearing all kinds of stuff. I'd be doing the same thing to Mary. I love surprises. Why? Because I want to be surprised. <laughs> Ain't nothing like a good surprise, a blessing that you weren't expecting. So with my kids, I do that all the time. I'll just tell them, look, we've got a surprise for you. And because I won't tell them where we're going, right, then they start having all these ideas. Are we going to Disneyland? Are we going here? And then they get mad when I say no. They're angry because they don't know where they're going. And then they make me angry because now all of a sudden you're being selfish and ungrateful. <laughs> just, just shut up and be happy that you're going to get a surprise. But now I look in the rearview mirror and they're back there pouty faces and mad and they're arguing about where they want to go. And I'm tempted to say, screw the surprise. You ain't going nowhere. See, the difference about God, though, is we do the same thing. We're in the back seat complaining about where we're going, complaining about not knowing where we're going, right? And if he was like us, we would truly never go anywhere because he'd be like, screw it. But he's not like us. He says, listen, I've already put you on the conveyor, and I'm taking you where I want to take you, and it's going to be a blessing. I'm not taking you to some place that's going to be terrible. I'm not taking you to some place where you're going to get there and become a slave to me to do all these things I want you to do. I only take you good places. I only take you places of blessing. Along the way, though, I might show you a few things. See, where I'm trying to take these Pharisees, along the way, they're going to have to meet a woman like this who's going to convict them, right? There's going to be a lot of stops along the way, a lot of things you see out of the, out of the window on this journey, on this conveyor belt that God has taken you that's going to be shaping your heart, molding you, changing you, transforming you. But I'm telling you, where he's going you know, and the way you know, because he says, I am the way. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. We're going to pray. Worship team, you guys can come. Praise the Lord. Christ alone. He's the only one that can do these things, church.
And this is all he does. He doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have some other goal that he's trying to accomplish. He says that I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Those are his words.